This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. Looks like we got kind of a short one this week, so I don't really have any problem with that either way. I don't care if there's one question or a hundred, I'll try my best to get through all of them. And I think people generally like them medium length, but some people prefer them short, some people prefer them long so they could just listen during their commute and only tune in when something applies to them. But either way, I just like doing them. So let's jump in and see what we got. On YouTube, Brian Wims said, since all analog signals have some amount of signal degradation or interference, converting an analog video signal to digital isn't going to look quite as good as an all-digital solution. But older consoles, particularly up to 3rd gen and maybe some games on 4th gen, have pretty limited color palettes. Assuming optimal timings and good quality cables are used, would it be feasible for a scalar or similar hardware to just change the pixels, either mathematically or with lookup tables, to the nearest known color in the palette? If so, it seems like it could be possible to get a digital-like picture on some consoles without an HDMI mod. And this could be applied to something that's known for really bad jail bars or interference, like an unmodded master system. So I love the concept, and... I I just don't know how it would apply to anything in real time. So just some very quick overview for anybody who's not quite sure what we were talking about. Anytime you have an analog signal and you convert it to digital, it's going to carry some of the noise that is inherent to all analog signals in it. And the best example of this is taking like uh, a composite video signal and putting it on a 20-inch CRT, and then taking that same composite video signal, even through an awesome scaler like the RetroTINK 5X, and throwing it on a 60-inch OLED TV, you're going to start to see all of the things that you would never see on an original CRT television. And of course, maybe RGB would have been a better example or something, but the point is that when you have something that's created in the digital realm, displayed on a digital display, it's manipulated any way you want it to be, and it could stay true to the original. Whereas when it's in the analog form, it brings a bunch of stuff along with it. So the newer scalers are great at filtering this out. Um, You'd be hard pressed to tell the difference between an N64 digital and an N64 running through a really good scaler like the RetroTINK 5X, you know, blown up on a TV, Um, unless they're side by side, of course. But the idea that Brian had came up with is automatically scanning the colors and replacing them with a digital version. And while I think something like this would be possible using like AI upscaling and post-processing, I don't know if that's even remotely possible in real time. So it should be possible for somebody to write some kind of script or something where you take it and run it through a piece of software that could do a three-pass, you know, definitely more than a single pass, but it'd go through and check out every pixel of every frame and then reference it back to the original and try to recreate it. But to do that in real time, would uh, I don't think it's possible. And if it would be possible, it would add a lot of latency. And then you also get into the discussion of, is that the real image? Is that what's supposed to be displayed? Or is that what an algorithm that a human being wrote 
is displaying and that's now are you changing it which doesn't really matter it's just it's another debate so i think that's really cool and i think i'd love to see something like that in post-processing for people who just want to do very cool artistic things with their captures but i don't know if it's something that could ever happen in real time at least with the technology of today but i'm not an expert in this so if anybody has any thoughts on this please chime in I love spitballing ideas like this, uh, and I'm notorious for coming up with ideas that are probably impossible now, but it's rooted in some kind of actual science and truth. So the conversation then moves on to things that can happen, and then we end up creating a real product out of an original crazy idea. So uh, keep them coming. I love this stuff. Uh, let's just, if anybody has any ideas on how to do that, either in post-processing or even a theory of how to do that in real time, somebody with experience, you know, not, not just a barstool racer, respectfully, somebody with experience in this stuff, um, you know, I would love to hear from him. James the Naked Snake wanted to chime in in regards to Oliver's question from last week regarding how to prepare an Xbox 360 for sale that they picked up at a local place for cheap. And I sort of agree with James's thoughts, but they're all valid points, so I definitely thought it was worth talking about. Uh, but James said they would... Um, they would probably recommend stripping the console down to repaste and inspect capacitors and clean the disk drive of the dust that is likely built up. They also recommend putting the rubber O-ring from the disk drive in some boiling water, as these often prevent the disk drive from opening and closing. They'd especially do this if it's a FAT360. They'd also, it would also be worth checking if it's a Jasper, Xenon, etc. that could be checked on a website that allows you to identify which of the consoles it is just based on referencing pictures of the power connector built onto the console. Um, so other than that, just make sure that both exhaust fans are working. So I agree with all of that just in a slightly different context. So the whole checking if it's a Jasper, Xenon, et cetera, I think that's something that's non-invasive and it's a very cool thing for people to know just so you can know what to do with it, what kind of console it is. So I think that is a pretty good piece of information. And of course, making sure both of the exhaust fans are working. Definitely, that kind of goes hand in hand with my blow it all out with compressed air and make sure there's no nothing kind of rattling around inside. But if you power on this console and it's working and there's nothing rattling around and the drive ejects and the fans are working um, and you don't see any any very obvious signs of damage and we're talking about a 360 by the way not the original xbox there's obviously that one capacitor that you really need to snip on all of those i think if it's in that condition everything else that you said would be what i would recommend that people do when they buy a used 360 because you're putting a lot of pressure on the seller to get all that stuff right. And what if you have a console that's working totally fine, that probably has at least a year's life left on it, that somebody who purchased it for a reasonable price would be completely fine knowing that it's a used console and it could last any imagine or any, any point of time at all. But then you open it up and you try to, uh, you know, do some repasting and, you know, clean everything up and you end up breaking something. Now you've lost money, you've lost time and you've broken a perfectly good console. So if you're an expert, sure, take the console all apart, do all of the things that you just said, and then sell it at a premium in detail, take pictures of everything you did, prove to people that you really did do an expert 
once over on this thing before selling it. So that I would recommend. But for just your average person, I think that's something that should really be in the hands of the buyer. And, and you know, unless that's once again, you're an expert offering this service as part of the charge of the console. So I agree with everything that you said. I just think that if something's in perfectly good working condition and there's not a known issue like the clock capacitor on the original Xbox, I don't think there's a reason to open it unless there's a clue as to something that might be wrong with it. I think anybody buying it should just be understanding that they're buying a used console. But, uh, you know, hopefully that came out okay, because I agree with everything that you said, just in a slightly different order. Uh, Also, James had a question. Um, The joystick on their PlayStation 1 controllers has a very large dead zone, and it doesn't recenter properly. It might be that the stick is worn or that the analog module um, is a bit worn out as well. And they need to open it to check, but they're worried that if the modular is worn and needs replacing, how would you replace it? So are there spares specifically for the PS1? Can you cannibalize uh, a broken controller from a PS2, 3, or 4? Can you use the spares from the PS4 on the analog joystick of the PS1? And those are all good questions. Um, The first thing that I would say is that uh, you know, I would. I think there is many different versions of the PlayStation One controller. Um, there's ones, and they're slightly different too. So unless they were next to each other or you were an expert, you might not even be able to tell. But that's one of those things that you know. I would not be comfortable answering that because I definitely don't know the specifics. Uh, but I'd love to hear everybody else's thoughts on this. Is there one analog replacement stick that you could use for PS1 controllers? Is it the same as the PS2? Um, the other thing that I can recommend is the PS Retro Uno, the Bluetooth adapter based on Blue Retro, Darth Cloud's project that is incredibly low latency and allows you to connect a wireless PS4 controller to your PS1 and 2. I think those are coming back in stock relatively soon. So that is certainly a good solution, but it's not the answer to your question. Your question is, how do you fix the PlayStation 1 controller? And that's something that I need to default to anybody listening for, because I'm definitely not an expert in that. Uh, And I think there's a chance that there could be different sizes available, which doesn't really make sense. But I've seen the different sizes of the PlayStation controllers, which means there's multiple molds out there. So that who's to say that they didn't do the same thing for the analog sticks in them as well. Uh, so take uh, look into uh, PS Retro Uno. I'll drop a link to that. And also, if anybody has any info on solid replacement analog sticks for PS1 or even PS2, 3, whatever, uh, I would love to have that info out there and maybe even add it to the wiki as reference. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, they have a great deal of coax cables laying around, the ones we used to use for RF back in the day or for cable modems now. They have adapters to plug these in via RCA or BNC if they want to, so are any of them decent for analog signal quality? If they could use them as substitute RCA cables in some of their setups, it would save a ton of hassle, but a lot of them are probably cheap, poorly shielded garbage too, so they're not sure if it's even worth considering. So I am going off of memory from this from a very long time ago, but I distinctly remember a couple people I know who I trusted who weren't, you know, who weren't frauds using coax for speaker cables sometimes because they needed to do long runs across, you know, different pieces of metal. There was some interference. So they used RG6 coax, not RG59, which I think is a thicker 
I actually can't remember what the difference is, but I do know that there was there was a difference between them, and part of it I think had to do with shielding. So if it were the better quality cable and there was you know the right lengths, or if you had enough where you could cut them each to their right lengths and you know just crimp new ends on them, I think that would be a perfectly good solution that would offer a lot of shielding. Now they're you know much thicker, they're harder to bend, so you have to take that into consideration. If you're running a whole bunch of them around corners, it's going to be way more of a pain than getting like a set of HD Retrovision RCA to RCAs or something like that. But I think it has the potential of performing exactly the way that you wanted. And since you already own them, you know, it's really just the cost of the new connectors and a crimper or something like that. So it might benefit you. But that's one of those things that if you already have it, I would recommend trying it and seeing what happens, especially if you're going into something like a cross point where, you know, there's going to be a ton of wires anyway, and it's going to be a mess no matter what you do. So it's a good question, but I'm pretty sure as long as it's well shielded, that's going to be a good option. Uh, second, while on the subject of decent do-it-yourself cables, do I have any recommendations on what to get as far as tubing, shielding, wire gauge, etc.? They've been looking on both Mauser and DigiKey at all sorts of things, but don't really have the experience or perspective to know what's worthwhile. What materials are worth using gives me a whole new respect for people like HD Retrovision and Retro Access. Um, yeah, agreed. Uh, you know, the thicker w- the wire gauge, the better. But there comes a point to which it's just useless. So, you know, you could have a wire gauge that's meant for, you know, running power through the power lines down your street. And it's just it's not going to gain you anything over past a certain point. So I don't know a gauge that's kind of like a rule of thumb for that. But I think using a coax wire would be about as thick as you would ever really need to go with anything like this. Um, But if you're talking about making your cables as like twisting the wires, putting some foam around them, wrapping them. Um, I wouldn't even know where to begin because that's just, that's a whole other level. And and that might be a fun hobby thing to do, but that's not going to be cost effective. You would absolutely save money just, you know, grabbing a couple of sets of HD retrovisions off of Amazon as opposed to buying all the stuff to roll them yourself. So if anybody has any thoughts on that, I'd certainly love to entertain the idea of it, but I'm not taking the time to do it because that's a lot of time and effort (laughs) for, uh, you know, for what might not be as good as what other people have already done. And, uh, you know, respectfully, of course, if I had a choice between doing one or the other, I would absolutely try the coax um, RF cable uh, experiment just because, you know, for a crimper and some heads, you could do this pretty cheaply. And if it doesn't work, whatever, you just, you know, get rid of the cables. But rolling your own from scratch, ooh, that would be rough. Uh, lastly, as someone familiar with living in a small space, yeah, I certainly freaking am. <laughs> um, uh, and also owning several CRTs. Do I have any suggestions on placing them so they could have multiple in a relatively small environment? Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, metal racks, but I'll continue with your question. Uh, not quite your CRT wall, but maybe three or four different ones in a cramped apartment. In general, most people suggest using vertical space for maximizing your room's potential, but since CRTs are so front heavy and oddly shaped, they don't know if they'd ever feel safe stacking certain ones. When, if ever, is it safe to stack them, or should there, should there always be some type of shelving between them for structure? Maybe they should look into getting an AV card on wheels, though they tend to be too tall and make their neck sore looking up at them. Any pointers on the subject would be great. So, 
everything I'm, most of what I'm about to say is opinions. Um, the only fact is I also would not ever stack them for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, you know, maybe something like two, eight inches on top of each other, but that's it. Uh, you know, past that size, I would not feel comfortable stacking them. And I would recommend that nobody else really do either. Maybe for storage, maybe, but there's so much that can go wrong. Um, but here's my opinions on the rest of that stuff. Uh, any kind of metal rack is a great idea. I would cut a piece of wood, just a thin piece of uh, plywood or something that fits on each shelf, which distributes the weight more evenly. Otherwise, you're going to have a TV with four, you know, like if you have a PVM, they have the four little feet on the bottom that would put all of the pressure in those four places. And you'll see some bowing in the shelf. Whereas if you put a piece of wood over all of it, you put the TV on it, it distributes the weight evenly. And I would be very comfortable stacking them that way, as I do here. And, you know, it's one of those things where if you're in limited space, you might just have to have a very cool storage solution with your favorite monitor at your proper height. So match it to your couch, your chair, whatever. Um, or if you stand while gaming, that's, I, I don't, I stand while doing these, but I don't stand while gaming, but match the, your favorite CRT the, or the one that you're going to use the most to the exact height that you're going to be at when you're sitting to try to match it about the same way of, you know, where your eyes are. And then if you want to use the other ones, you know, take the other one off the shelf and have like another little AV stand that you could also like, I have an AV stand that's also an end table here at the couch. So I could, you know, use it for multiple things. And that way, when you have your monitor stacked, you could take the one off that you need to use, put it in front uh, and do it that way. Another thing like uh, down here, right exactly where I am, I have a desk that's at standing height. Um, but I don't have one of the ones that goes up and down. And sometimes I like to just sit while I type. So I got a chair that goes very high all the way down to normal sitting length. So um, that's another thing too, is if you could find a ch like an office chair that can go up really high, you could have two or three levels of CRTs there possibly that would be at a good enough eye level to where you're not going to get a neck cramp. Um, the other thing always is put the heaviest stuff towards the bottom. Obviously you don't want to look down while playing, but you could put things like cross points, power supplies. Uh, if you have a UPS or any power equipment, and then all the consoles too, all the way on the bottom of them and try to distribute it evenly. So if you have all of your power supplies on one, move your, you know, 400 pound Philips CDI to the other one to distribute the weight that way. And the lightest stuff on all the top shelves. So your controllers, any accessories, games, stuff like that. Um, and you could really utilize floor to ceiling storage for that. And I, I brought what I learned from the, living in the city here too. Someday, as soon as um, it's in a workable uh, workable state, I'll do a room tour, but I, I have a metal rack that's floor to ceiling with my oscilloscope, a monitor and everything on it. And uh, I kind of designed it to be the same way. So once again, those are just thoughts, opinions, do whatever is right for you. But I love the whole metal rack, especially the ones on wheels, which you got to make sure to get really good casters if you're going to put monitors on it. I know I've told the story a million times, but I am okay repeating myself. I have the D32 and I had a knockoff cheap rack, which was fine. The shelves were fine. The poles were fine, but the casters screwed into the bottom. And I eventually ordered a more industrial, not knockoff one where the casters have to be banged in with a mallet. And those are much more solid, bigger wheels too. And I put the new one together 
and I lined it up to the other one. So, cause I wanted to make sure, cause the wheels were bigger. So I wanted to make sure I have the shelf lower so that the, the, my BVM was at the same exact height, which matched my couch and everything. And the plan was to have beast come over after work and we were going to lift it off one into the other. And as I lined it up, I'm going, did I do this crooked? Did I have it like, you know, do I have the shelf wrong? It's not. Why is it crooked? And I looked and from wheeling the cheap cart around, the caster had backed itself out. So it was slowly unscrewing itself. So if I had waited just another day or two, if I had moved it two or three more times, that caster would have snapped off on the front side and my D32 might've gone sliding off onto the ground glass first. So I kind of panicked when I saw that and I got that like, you know, hulky mom strength, like my kid's in danger. And I picked up the D32 myself and put it over, which the weight of it is heavy, but the width of it was, you know, I'm, I'm tall, but I'm not that tall. So my arm width isn't that wide, but I still managed to just grab it and do it and figuring like, I don't want to see this thing fall over. So, you know, if you heard that story before, I don't mind repeating myself because that's one that needs to burn into your brain. Getting those casters that screw into the bottom almost cost me my D32. So it's totally cool to have wheels on these. Just make sure to get the really good ones. The ones that you have to, you know, to bang in the bottom, the ones that are rated for industrial use and stuff like that. But I love the metal racks and I love having a second one for just wheeling over whenever you need it for whatever, you know, whatever purposes you have. And the multi-height chair could also kind of be fun depending on your setup. Couple questions from Brady. First, they've been learning to solder and have successfully recapped a Genesis 2 as well as a Game Gear and brought them both back to life. They feel like they're ready to recap a Sega Saturn. However, they know the Saturn as well as the Dreamcast has high voltage capacitors since the power supply is internal. So for example, the Saturn has a 200 volt cap on the power supply, whereas the Genesis has those higher voltage caps in the power brick externally, which has them concerned. They were wondering what's the best way to discharge these caps in a Saturn or Dreamcast. Is it turning it on and off again when it's not plugged in or is it something different? So, I am always overly cautious about power, and I always just want to recommend that whenever you're working with power, it is dangerous, but I don't think you should worry about this, as long as it's unplugged from the wall. Like, we do have to be realistic. If you forget and leave it plugged into the wall and grab it, you're going to get zapped, but if you've successfully recapped two consoles, you're probably not going to make that mistake, but... I think the biggest difference is volts versus amps. So, you know how when you have like a, a you know, a fuzzy sweater on and you touch a light switch and you get zapped, that's thousands of volts, but not many amps. So it stings for a second, but it doesn't do any damage. You're not going to die from it. Uh, it's just one of those things where it, it's, you know, it, it just kind of freaks you out more than anything else. So that's volts. And I'm being very general here. So, you know, certainly don't apply this to like power lines or anything like that. I'm talking about in the context of consoles only. Um, but, you know, when you have something like a CRT that needs to be discharged, that's a lot of amps in there that are coming out at you, not just the voltage. So when you have something like an internal power supply for a console, there is more of a chance of getting zapped, but it's it's much less of a charge. It's much less of an amp, an amperage, and I wouldn't worry about it as much. So unplug it from the wall and then just take a screwdriver with it unplugged from the wall, in case anybody's half listening, and then just touch the two pins on the AC connector together just to kind of drain that. Uh, you could let it sit for a half hour or so if you wanted to be extra cautious. Uh, I think you could probably do the same thing where you take a screwdriver with a plastic handle and, and jump the two legs of the capacitor together to discharge it. But, you know, 
it, it's one of those things where I wouldn't worry about it too much. I'm glad to hear that you're being cautious around power because we all should be, uh, but it's one of those things that I, I just, I think it's much less of a concern than something like working on a CRT. And once again, I got to repeat myself. This is all in the context of working on a video game console that has been unplugged from the wall. If you try to jump a capacitor together on a power supply that's plugged into AC, that's a totally different story. <laughs> so please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, if there's any experts out there, but I honestly can't think of a single reason that you would have to worry about unplugging something from the wall, you know, maybe discharge it by, by jumping the AC pins together, you know, just the two, the two prongs together and waiting a couple of minutes. I don't think there's any danger at all of doing that, but please correct me if I'm wrong on that one. I certainly have never gotten zapped and I used to work on internal power supplies for the medical grade computers that we used, which had higher, you know, higher voltage capacitors and, it, you know, they were built like tanks. And the only time I ever get zapped uh, is when I leaned over on a table and my hand touched an open frame power supply that was plugged in and running in a test environment. So, you know, I basically just ignored my own advice and was half asleep. And it happened quite a few times, an embarrassing amount of times, actually, but never a problem when it was unplugged. Second question, they have an HD Retrovision Genesis cable that they mainly use with the Sega Saturn adapter. However, recently when they were removing the adapter, the metal ring that protects the pins on the Genesis cable pulled out along with it. They were wondering if there's a way to repair this or if there's somebody out there who is willing to repair something like this. Pushing back in the metal ring does not seem to do the trick. There's no picture now and the cable is so expensive it would be a waste to just throw it away. So I would start by contacting HD Retrovision and just seeing what they'll do. If you bought it within a reasonable period of time, they might replace it. They might repair it for you. They might repair it for a, you know, a reasonable charge, but that's definitely where I would start. From there, you know, if, if this is a four-year-old cable or something, it's obviously out of warranty and it sucks that that happened. Um, you could try stripping the end and remaking your own. Making cables is really hard and really tedious, uh, but it's something that you could do. Um, you might think about doing something like cutting the end off and soldering it onto a breakout board. You could even use just like a, a basic breadboard from a hobby kit uh, if you wanted to, and then trying to maybe put like a, some other kind of connector on there. But there's a bunch of solutions that you could do that, it, that you could basically hack up to work. And it's not something I would recommend that you do and then sell them as a hobby. <laughs> I just mean for your own personal use. There are some hacks that you could do that are not pretty that will absolutely work and not be unsafe or cause interference or anything like that. So uh, it's something to look into, but I would start by emailing them just to see. You never know. Uh, but yeah, that, that happens. That stinks. I, I think I've seen a couple of connectors break before on those, like the, you know, the RGB side for the video for, you know, component video. And in that case, it's the same thing. You snip the end off, you have the, the two leads coming out, you put one of those do-it-yourself RCA connector kits on there, but that's infinitely easier because that's, you know, ground and signal. Whereas on the console side of things, now you're talking about having, you know, all of those individual pins connected. So, uh, it, you know, I guess just start by emailing them and see what happens, but hopefully they could take care of you. So I want to talk about an idea for a whatnot stream. Now, all the questions are over. This was shorter than usual. So if you really don't care about this, you could just turn the podcast off. But I did want to ask all of you your opinion on this. Um, so what I've been learning in using whatnot is that most sellers just, you know, and I mean this with no disrespect at all, but most sellers, they hold up their game, they talk about it, they auction it, that's it. 
what I like doing the like open up a box, let's go through it type of thing isn't the norm there. So I wanted to do one of those where I open up a box of converters and, and, uh, you know, transcoders and all this crazy stuff I have in a box right over there that I never really use anymore that I bought mostly for testing. And I keep buying them to test and to update the website pages with them and all that stuff. But I want to pick a time that you know, that a good time for us to do it together. And I want it to be about us for us. And I mean us as retro gaming nerds. And I might even title the stream other, you know, I might even title the stream, like, do not watch. This is for, you know, retro RGB nerds only or something like that. Not to tell people not to come, but just to kind of let people know that this is not going to be a game sales stream. This is going to be all of the weird stuff that we would like. So what's your thoughts on that? Would you like to do something like that? Uh, you know, would you like to buy some of these cheaper items and mostly cheaper items that I have laying around for your own use or just for fun or to test or whatever else? And what would be the good time to do it? Should I do it at like, I don't know, two in the afternoon on a Tuesday or something like that, just so you know, it covers a lot of different time zones. And maybe if you're at work, you could just be on the sly and be looking on your cell phone while it happens. I don't know. What's everybody's thoughts on that? Um, I would really like to do that because I just have so much junk that I know that many of you would not think is junk, would actually use or leave as a tool in your toolbox or something. So any thoughts on that? Any good time frames? And of course, you could join the one for this Friday, which is tonight, if you're watching this the day it goes public, where I'm going to be auctioning off some HDMI consoles and some other craziness. Uh, and just a polite reminder, please, if you don't already have a WhatNot account, click on the link below because you get $10 off your first purchase. So this is one of those things that really benefits you, which is why I'm pushing it so hard. I usually don't push affiliate codes and stuff like that. But when it really benefits you, I certainly do. So if you sign up, you know, definitely follow me. Uh, but more importantly, use that coupon code so that you can get some cash just for downloading a free app and signing up. Uh, so I guess that's pretty much it for this time. If you're, uh, you know, if you have any questions or that you want to ask, please ask wherever you support in the latest Q&A post. Because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. And I like to just scroll through in real time because it feels live-ish. But anyway, as always, thanks to everybody who supports in any way possible. I hope to see a bunch of you on the WhatNot streams. And I really hope to do that like retro nerd focused WhatNot stream soon. So please let me know what times you're around and when you all think I should do it. Because I have a feeling that would be a lot of fun for many of us and really boring for your average whatnot subscriber, which is why I want it to be about us. 